Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today we're going to be discussing a very serious issue. And the reason I say it's very serious is it's because it's a condition that can happen when you're on dialysis and it's called calciphylaxis. And sadly, I've had several friends that have suffered from this illness. And when I when I say suffer, they suffered. It's very painful. And I'm very excited today because we're going to be talking about new hope of therapies for calciphylaxis. There's some new medications and trials coming out. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Sinha and Dr. Nigwecker. So, so, so tell us a little bit about why people who have kidney disease are more prone to bone and mineral disease. Patients with kidney disease um, are prone to quite a lot of things, unfortunately, um, but mineral and bone disorder is one of the key things that become problematic as the kidney function starts to drop. And that's because of the role the kidneys do. You know, the cardiologist will tell you that the heart is the most important organ in the body, but it, it is absolutely the kidneys because they regulate all the salts and minerals in the body as well as blood pressure, so many things. And as kidney function declines, particularly those who are on dialysis, they retain certain salts, particularly things like phosphate. Um, and the kidneys also regulate our, our vitamins. So things like vitamin D that are so important for bone health, um, they, the kidneys are responsible for making that work. So activating vitamin D and a kidney function, you don't activate vitamin D so you don't get the beneficial effects. So again, you get problems with your bones, you get problems with calcium and phosphate, um, getting stuck in blood vessels, also affecting your fracture risk. Um, so lots of lots of ways that um, patients with kidney disease, particularly those on dialysis, are more prone to these these problems, a mixture of uh, retention as well as problems with hormones um, and regulating those you know, the kidneys are the master chemists. I mean, you know, the heart gets a lot of attention because obviously we need that and our lungs, but the kidneys are just as important. And, um, you know, people often don't give them as much credit. So, you know, when you're, when you have kidney disease, it's, it's very common that you take phosphate binders. So can you tell us a little bit about how phosphate binders help prevent you know, advanced bone and mineral disorder? Like, what is the mechanism? Thank you for um, having me. As Dr. Sina was alluding to in her previous comments, kidneys are integral part of managing uh, mineral and bone parameters. One of the most commonly discussed analyte is phosphate. And I'm sure individuals who have kidney disease, and particularly those who have on dialysis, uh, may have heard about phosphate Every few weeks, a dietitian in particular may show up at your dialysis chair with a chart that mentions the level of phosphate and likely has some smiley and frowny faces. The main reason they are doing that is because phosphate in a number of studies has been shown to predict heart problems, events such as stroke, and also rare conditions such as calciphylaxis that we will discuss today. There are two ways, broadly speaking, to manage phosphate. One is diet, and the second is 
medications such as phosphate binders. What the binders do is essentially they bind the phosphate that is coming from the dietary intake. So every time we consume food, and certain foods, of course, are going to be higher in terms of their content of phosphate than the others, but all that phosphate is going to be absorbed, or most of it is going to be absorbed uh, in the gut, and large part of it will go into the blood circulation, and some of it will cause problems in terms of the bone health, in terms of the heart health, in terms of the blood vessel health. So the binders try to block that absorption of phosphate. Now, are they perfect? Unfortunately, they are not. They cause sometimes side effects. Sometimes they may not be efficient. So the individuals are then stuck with taking many, many, many pills or capsules every day. But that is one of the best approaches that we have at present in terms of controlling the phosphate uh, in individuals with advanced kidney disease particularly those who are on dialysis. Well, you know, I took phosphate binders for probably, I don't know, 16 years, 17 years um, in the early stages of phosphate binders. And, uh, you know, it's really important that the people listening that when you take phosphate binders, make sure you take them with your meal, not an hour after your meal or an hour before your meal. You need to take it, you know, around the time you eat because it it binds to the food and then you void it out. So it, it's very important. Um, I wanted to just mention a little bit because I think it's worth saying because there's so much phosphorus out there. We're somewhat climbing a, an uphill battle. Uh, pr- processed foods are just loaded with them. Anything you want to say about that? Because I think people really need to know when you eat processed foods, it's a preservative, phosphorus is. So you get a, you don't even know you're eating it. That's an incredibly important point you raise. So there is a kind of a, a, a well-recognized entity now of quote-unquote hidden phosphate. And that, you know, part of that hidden phosphate is coming from foods where, you know, the labels uh, do not clearly identify phosphate as one of the major ingredients in there. And that is particularly true when it comes to processed foods and most of the fast foods. In addition to the high phosphate content of many of those foods, particularly colas, for example, as an example of, um, of the foods and beverages, the absorption of the phosphate from that, from those foods is also way higher, meaning for the same amount of phosphate that comes from, let's say, vegetable protein, you contrast that against the phosphate that is coming from a processed food, even though both food items may contain the same amount of phosphate, the human body will absorb way more phosphate that is coming from the processed food as compared to the uh, vegetable protein. So in addition to the content of the phosphate, there's also a difference in terms of how the human gut absorbs and interacts with that phosphate. And that is the reason that there is a lot of emphasis now in terms of educating individuals who have kidney disease um, in terms of paying close attention to those labels and really understand the high hidden phosphate content in many of these um, uh, food items, particularly the processed foods and the fast foods. Yeah, I just want to come in on the fizzy drink side of things. I was amazed at the effects that cutting out fizzy drinks can have on a patient's phosphate because you just see it as a liquid. 
and even you know small amounts can have a, an effect on phosphate. So um, that was that was a revelation to me when my dietitian shared that with me um, and the impact it can have on our patients. So absolutely echo the the hidden phosphorus. I know. There. I mean soda. I mean even tea. Now if you get bottled tea. It has phosphorus in it. So it's better to make your own tea at home <laughs> um, because it's a preservative. And it's not that hard. And it's actually better. Uh, what are some of the early warning signs if, you're, if you, your phosphorus is high? or your, I can't mention phosphorus without calcium. And then there's also the term that patients hear is, um, you know, secondary hyperparathyroidism. They all relate to bone and mineral health. So... What symptoms do you start to get if you have a high phosphorus? Which I know this question, but it's a pop quiz. <laughs> I know the answer. <laughs> it's really hard, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> part of the problem is you don't get any symptoms. Um, the vast majority of people don't. So, you know, we're rounding and, and, you know, we're saying, oh, your phosphate's up or your calcium's down or up and, oh, you're, you've got secondary hyperparathyroidism. And, and you don't often feel it. Um, some people might get itchy. Some people, um, you know, might notice that, some redness around the eyes. Um, but the vast majority of people, um, they don't feel it and they're just told there's a problem. Um, sadly, um, you know, if it goes unchecked, that's when problems can develop and people can develop an increased risk like fractures um, and muscle weakness. But largely, it's, it's really asymptomatic until things start to go wrong. And you certainly don't feel the deposition of um, calcium phosphate or, you know, the formation of things like calciflaxis until you've got it. Right. Um, and, then, and then sadly, you do feel it. And it's almost, you wish you could go back and change it. Yeah, it's difficult. I just remembered when my phosphorus was high that I had this like itch that was inside of my body. I mean, it wasn't an outside itch. It was internal. And the only way, I mean, it's horrible, like the only way I could really get any relief and I get it on my lower belly level. It's just to hit my belly, like lightly, like it almost just the pounding helped relieve it. So that tells you that it's like internal and it's pretty horrific when you're trying to sleep and you itch and then your skin's dry from dialysis. So, um, yeah, it's 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 not fun at all. Do, you know, do uh, people who do home dialysis, what is your opinion on that when, when it comes to bone and mineral health? Yeah, so in general, you know, adequate dialysis in somebody who has advanced kidney failure is, of course, recommended for a variety of reasons, including managing their bone and mineral complications. I mean, if we, if we just take a step back and really kind of admire the intense work that kidneys do, when it comes to phosphate, on average, in somebody who is following Western diet, the, the intake of phosphate is approximately... 1.2 grams every day, of which almost 800 milligram or so will get absorbed uh, in the intestines. And all of that, almost all of that will be eliminated uh, in the urine as long as the kidneys are working fine. And the remaining 400 milligram will not get absorbed and will, will get excreted in the feces. As you can imagine, when the kidney function is, is not there, if the intake remains the same of around 200 milligrams a day, Day after day, you're getting into this positive phosphate balance of around 800 milligrams per day. So how do we tackle that? Obviously, dialysis can help remove some of that phosphate, 
The limitation is, of course, dialysis, uh, removal of phosphate is time-dependent. The longer you are on the dialysis machine, more will be the phosphate removal. But it's not practical to be on dialysis uh, for a long durations of time for a variety of reasons. But in general, the programs that offer longer sessions of dialysis, patients tend to have um, lower levels of phosphate compared to the programs that do shorter durations of dialysis. But it does come at a cost, convenience, burden to the patients, burden to their informal caregivers. So there's a balance that needs to be struck. But of, of course, you know, in many individuals, you can do that with a combination of approaches, including dietary restriction, medications like phosphate binders, education of their caregivers in terms of which foods to prepare and which to avoid, and then, of course, then um, dialysis prescription. But it's not uncommon to come across a patient who is on a home program and is getting, you know, seven, eight hours of dialysis in a day. That patient actually frequently runs completely normal phosphate even without being on a phosphate binder. And it sometimes actually runs low phosphate compared to the normal range that has to be supplemented. We definitely see that the need for supplementation in those groups that are on nocturnal HD. And as you said, you know, seven to eight hours. But if they tend to be on a sort of Mediterranean diet, so they've almost restricted a bit themselves. But yeah, having to give them phosphate in their, in their dialysate is uh, very different to what oh. we're usually used to. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Well, you know, um, you just I just recalled a memory because when I got my fourth transplant um, a little over 10 years now, got a brag um, that it I had to drink phosphorus like a phosphorus supplement. And it was it was so weird because like your phosphorus is way too low. You have to drink this. And um, I just remember thinking, wow, what a turn of events. Phosphate binders last week, phosphate supplement this week. <laughs> so it was a, it was a little crazy. Um, we're going to switch a little bit to talking about this severe condition people can get when their bone and mineral metabolism are out of whack or some other reasons. Um, it's called calciphylaxis. Uh, can you explain this condition and what it is? You described it really well earlier, Laurie. It's, it's a really awful condition to have because it's so painful. But the reason why people get it, and it, it is largely in people who are on dialysis, um, although you can get it if you're not on dialysis, because of those minerals and bone disorders that we talked about earlier, the calcium and phosphate, the things that are supposed to say in your bone compartment, end up in the vascular compartment, so in your blood vessels. So they end up clogging up the small blood vessels uh, that supply your skin. So those blood vessels that are supposed to be really nice and elastic and, and allowing blood to flow through them, um, they start to become slightly calcified. And over time, that calcification is irritating to the skin around it. So you start to get the skin ahead of that getting deprived of oxygen. And when that happens, it's lost nutrients, it's lost oxygen, so the skin can start to break down. And when that happens, that's when you start to get ulcers forming. And they're really painful to the point where you might look at it and think, well, that doesn't look like very much, but the patient will be telling you this is really, really sore. So it could start with, you know, a little bit of a, a sort of lacy looking rash or a bit of a lump just under the skin um, that looks really harmless, but you try poking it and, it, you know, the patient will jump off the bed. Um, and so that they can be some of the earlier signs. And then eventually that 
sort of lump or rash will start to break down and you'll start to get what looks like a, a sore that doesn't really heal on its own. At that point, that's usually when people start to, to ask for help when the sore isn't healing. Ideally, what we want to do is, is, is get people flagging that earlier on, you know, when it's still that lump or that rash. Um, but that's sort of what people might experience when they start to develop calf Well, and it's always important when you get see any kind of open wound on your body to talk to your doctor. But I'm a big believer is whenever I see any type of open scratch or anything, I cover it immediately because there's all kinds of, um, I imagine you could get a staph infection through that sucker, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, I mean, because anytime, yeah, I get so worried. Like, you know, I get a little scratch, and I'm like, I look like, um, you know, I've got a big piece of gauze around it, because um, I had a staph infection once, and it's not any fun. <laughs> And no, you don't want sure. it again, do you? <laughs> it's no fun. Um, you know, how many people are at risk for calciphylaxis? Is it prevalent, or is it a small group of people? But if it's you, it hurts for sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. Uh, luckily, it's a rare entity, which is uh, probably the only good uh, thing about this disease. Uh, but obviously, a person who has it, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, but, you know, on average, you know, one can, at least in dialysis patient population, it is typically seen in that patient population. But even there, it is quite uncommon. Uh, less than 1% of dialysis patients uh, will develop this complication of calciphylaxis. Well, that's five or 6,000 people in the U.S. If it's less, if it's 1% or less, that's five or 6,000. Um, does it go undiagnosed sometimes? Well, sure. I mean, you know, as, as you can imagine, for many uh, other rare diseases, the awareness or the methods to kind of diagnose are still pretty much uh, in infancy. Uh, so it's not uncommon that the condition may not get diagnosed uh, in the early stage or in some cases may not get diagnosed at all until the patient uh, succumbs to it. So th- that is a challenge and individuals like Dr. Sina and I and many others, that, you know, one of the missions we run is to kind of educate the clinical providers about this condition. It's also seen in patients who are not on dialysis, uh, uh, although it's even more uncommon in that context, uh, but it is seen uh, in essentially across the spectrum of kidney disease, including in patients who have completely normal kidney function, but it is most commonly seen in patients who have uh, advanced kidney problems and are on dialysis. You know, I'll never forget, I had a friend, her name was Marsha. She had two children, and she she ended up dying of calciphylaxis. It was so severe. And um, she was in her early 40s. And it was, she was also diabetic. I, I don't know if that made it a little bit worse, but I just recall her just looking for like, what can I do? What can I do to get better? And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What treatments are available? And then um, we can go into, you know, there's hope because there might be uh, an effective treatment that's coming to the market soon, but they're doing a clinical research trial. So what are the current treatments available um, to patients for uh, calciphylaxis? You know, Laurie, that's such a difficult question because there are so many, so many things that we do. Um, whether they're actually treatments or not, um, we're struggling with, um, and that's what makes the condition so hard. Um, when you have someone in front of you who's in so much pain, we want to 
we want to help. So we will often try anything. Um, so there are a whole range of things that people do, and it, and it varies from country to country. It varies from doctor to doctor. You know, people will try and do things that try and get rid of things like phosphate. You know, if you can get the kidneys working as well as possible or work, or if you can get the dialysis you know, as efficient as possible. So people have tried all sorts of things like um, increasing dialysis frequency, increasing the amount of time someone's on dialysis, whacking up the phosphate binders, cutting out calcium, you know, as well as sort of more novel things like um, things as, as, as odd as asking people to go and sit in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So many things that, that people have tried um, surgery to try and reduce the, the hormones that contribute towards calcification but despite all of those attempts um, I don't think we can safely say that we have um, treatments out there what I would say is that really good team working is probably one of the most effective treatments you know having a, a clinic like Dr Nguarka's it, it's fantastic you know where you have nephrologists uh, working with skin specialists working with pain specialists you know they, they're the experts in those areas and they can really individualize the treatment um, but some of the stuff they're doing in Boston is fantastic and you know I think um, probably best if Dr. Nguyen talks about those um, particularly because they're pertinent to the Boston uh, sorry the U.S. people. Well, and, and I just know that I, when I saw those wounds on people that I know that had calciphylaxis and the pain, and then I just flash forward a little bit to 2021 in the U.S., you can't get a pain pill if your life depends on it hardly anymore. So it must be even more difficult because of all of our strict guidelines on um, uh, pain pills, which there's a good reason for it. But I often find that it's harder now to get treated for pain than it used to be many years ago. So my my hat's off to those of, of you out there suffering. Um, so how serious is this condition? I mean, you hurt, but is it, it explain, you know, the outcome if it's not treated? Yeah, so it is indeed uh, a serious and potentially life-threatening condition. As Dr. Sina was mentioning, a number of potential therapies or treatments get applied, but we do not have at present an approved therapy with proven safety and efficacy for this condition. So sadly, even after applying the currently available treatments, unfortunately, the outcomes are not optimal. Uh, patients, of course, uh, suffer intense uh, morbidity as it relates to pain, uh, the wounds, uh, propensity for infections, frequent hospitalizations, so on and so forth. And I think what is really striking is uh, the high death rates especially for patients who are on dialysis and have developed calciphylaxis and have open wounds. Uh, the risk of infection is quite high. Uh, these individuals, of course, are ill to begin with because of their dialysis dependency and other heart or other systemic conditions. So on average, uh, you know, the one-year death rate is around 50-60% uh, in these patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is quite a striking number. In fact, you know, it's sad, but um, so this condition looks like, you know, has even higher mortality than some of the most advanced cancers. And we hope that, you know, as the cancer now is slowly undergoing the change in terms of having more effective personalized treatments, one of these days we will have accurate uh, treatments for calciphylaxis. And I think that's what is making us uh, quite excited with this uh, new trial. 
that we will discuss in the next few minutes. Well, I have to say some of my favorite people are innovators and people who do research behind the scenes to improve our lives. So we're going to, um, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, through our discussion today, we've you, we've learned a lot about calciphylaxis and how it relies on symptoms management of the patient's wound healing and wound pain. I mean, we, we really have to do that. However, despite the care, the medical outcomes remain poor and, you know, sadly, patients Patients experience severe pain and reduced quality of life. So there really is a need to find an alternative therapy for for my peers, for people who have kidney disease, as they are currently, there's currently no approved therapies other than, you know, kind of the mismatch that you just talked about uh, for the treatment of calciphylaxis. Do you have any information you can share with us about the therapies that might be in evaluation, which is is really exciting? (laughs) Yeah, we're excited too, Laurie. So there is um, a study going on at the moment. It's a phase three clinical trial. It's called the Calcifix trial. Um, The purpose of this clinical trial is really to evaluate if this new investigational drug, it's, it's got a jazzy name, SNS472, um, can actually improve wound healing and reduce that wound pain when you add it to the usual care or the current care that patients are getting um, for their calciphylaxis. Um, and importantly, the safety of that study drug um, is also going to be evaluated in this, in this trial. Uh, can you explain the clinical trial? Um, well, so a clinical trial is is a, is a medical research study. So it is a research study. Um, and what we uh, are aiming to do is we want to see if the investigational drug is safe uh, and if it works. So there are health authorities such as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You might have known of them as the FDA. Or in Europe, uh, we have the European Medicines Agency, so EMA. Um, so they will oversee medical research studies um, Participation in any clinical trial is always voluntary um, and all aspects of this calcific study have been approved by an ethics committee. So they're the ones that ensure that the rights of study uh, participants are, are always protected. And, you know, explain how does this drug work? I'm always fascinated with the science. So this, uh, this is, you know, quite an exciting um, and novel product that is now, of course, in a phase three clinical trial for patients with calciphylaxis. So... As you were discussing before, one of the main reasons that conditions like calciphylaxis develops is because of blockage in the blood vessels that supply different body parts. So, of course, with calciphylaxis, we most commonly discuss the skin tissue. And so there are these tiny blood vessels that supply the skin tissue. Uh, and if they are blocked because of things like calcium and phosphate, then the blood flow is limited the skin doesn't get the blood supply that it needs. As a result, it may break down. There may be pain in the skin. So what this medication, uh, SNF472, tries to do is actually it blocks the formation of of those calcium and phosphate blockages. So that way, the blood flow remains intact, smooth, and the skin continues to get perfusion uh, from the blood. It's really, I think, a very elegant mechanism to prevent uh, those blockages in the blood vessels uh, and and restore uh, the blood flow uh, to the skin with, of course, the hope of improving the patient's pain and heal those wounds and then keep them um, alive by preventing infections. 
Yeah, and I think it's probably worth also noting that, you know, this study drug has um, been used in previous clinical trials. So, you know, over 200 patients um, receiving hemodialysis have received SNF472. Um, it's also been studied in a previous clinical trial in hemodialysis patients with calciphylaxis. Um, and those participants had improvements in wound healing uh, and wound-related pain after receiving the drug for 12 weeks. Um, they've also looked at another clinical trial um, um, in hemodialysis patients looking at, you know, calcification of the coronary arteries. So we've heard today about calcification of the blood vessels that supply the skin. But in this study, they, um, they measured the calcification in coronary arteries. And that study showed that SNF472 reduced the further calcification even in those blood vessels. And in that study, patients received the study drug for 52 weeks during. And, you know, it was generally well tolerated by the study patients um, throughout their time in the trial. Um, and the effect was observed in patients who were also receiving their standard care. Uh, so it wasn't that, that like their other treatment was stopped and they just got this. So they also received their standard management for end-stage kidney disease, including their dialysis and prescribed medications for things like high blood pressure, lipids, phosphorus, and other things according to their primary treating nephrologist. Well, you know, who, who can enroll in this study? Um, do you have to have a diagnosis of calcifylaxis, or how, how does that work? So the Calcifix trial is currently um, enrolling adults, so um, it does mainly affect adults, so that's the population. Um, but they have to be on hemodialysis, and they will have been on hemodialysis for at least two weeks. But Obviously, they have to have calciphylaxis, so um, they need to have at least one painful and ulcerated lesion. And it has to be diagnosed by a health professional, such as um, a nephrologist, but, you know, or potentially a, a wound care specialist might be the person making the diagnosis. Eligible patients can, you know, continue to receive other treatments. So a lot of patients receive intravenous sodium thiosulfate. They don't need to have a skin biopsy to diagnose calciphylaxis, you know, so you can continue on your treatments and you don't need a biopsy. Um, and study patients, study participants rather, will continue to receive their regular care and their pain medications for their wounds. So we wouldn't deny that. And how long is the study? So the study in total goes on for approximately six months, of which the first uh, three months is what we call a randomized blinded study. Uh, in that phase of the study, participants have 50% chance of getting assigned to the active study drug uh, and a 50% chance that uh, they may receive uh, a placebo medication. And once that first phase of the study is over, meaning the first three months, then in the next, next three months, uh, patients are receiving what we call like open-label therapy with SNF472. So everybody who is in that second phase of the study will receive the active study medication, SNF472. So in total, it will go on for approximately six months, and patients who are participating will be very closely followed by the study staff during this period. So can you explain why research studies are so important? I know this is kind of a given, but I think people need to really realize that that's how the future of medicine happens. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, clinical research studies, uh, they're so important because that's how we get information um, on what works and what doesn't. You know, ultimately, it's clinical research studies that give us the information that lead to new medications and treatments. And, and these studies will help us determine if 
these medications are, uh, you know, effective in producing the benefit that they're thought to, but also importantly, whether they cause side effects. So if people participating in clinical research studies contributes to progress in medical research, and, and we all want that. If you agree to be in the study and you change your mind, can you, you know, opt out at some point? And a follow-up question to that is, do you have to be at a certain location? Yeah, so the study is, uh, uh, is, is going on in multiple countries and multiple centers across the world. So you, of course, need to be enrolled through one of those centers. So in that regard, you need to have an access to a center that is enrolling patients. But the the trial is, you know, going on pretty much all over the U.S. and many parts uh, of Europe. Uh, so, you know, very likely you will be able to find a center close to you that can enroll uh, or at least evaluate and then subsequently enroll you into the trial. Uh, like with any clinical trial, there is a description of the study to the participant and before the participant decides to participate. And of course, uh, they always have the right to not participate or discontinue the study if they if something comes up during the study period. Uh, but of course, uh, this being designed as a clinical trial, what we typically try to achieve is even if a patient uh, discontinues receiving the study medication, we still keep the patient in the study with the intent of gathering all the information that is being uh, collected on that participant so that we have a very complete and a robust data on all the participants. But individuals can discontinue the study drug if, uh, if something is going on with their trial. Absolutely, that is their right. You know, this is so exciting. And I, I just have a couple questions before we wrap up. Um, what's involved if you're in the study? Just you get your blood drawn and then you get medicine during dialysis? Is that how it works, or do you take a pill? Oh, good question. Um, uh, so it's a, a drug that's given during dialysis, so no no tablets, you know, and this will be in the patient information leaflet that people will get, and then they'll find the consent form that goes along with that. But from a practical point of view, there will be a study schedule. I think that's the term that we use. So after the consent form has been signed, you know, we're going to want to make sure that patient's pain is steady, that we're measuring that appropriately, and that we can actually look at the wound. Um, so we'll be looking at the wound, taking measurements in different ways, um, and then making sure that um, we can track that. So we track wounds and we track pain. Um, so for a period, we're just getting that steady. And then when the, the study trial starts, well, the trial starts properly, um, patients will either receive you know, a kind of a dummy infusion or they'll receive SNF472. And that's a, an infusion that's administered during dialysis. So, you know, as, as a patient uh, participating in the trial, you're probably not going to notice much because it's happening within uh, the, the dialysis <laughs> treatment itself. But there will be a lot of focus on your pain and your, what your wound looks like as parts of regular assessments, as well as some of those safety uh, assessments that we mentioned earlier. You know, um, this is really exciting because I, like I said before, a couple of my friends have really suffered from this and there was no hope. And, you know, I always say, just stay alive till the next miracle happens. That's what you need to do. And, uh, well, thank you very much for sharing this information. Um, you know, anybody who's interested, you know, can get additional information at the trial by uh, going to www.clinicaltrials.gov. And the number is, we'll have this on our website, but 
It's NCT 04195906. And that's depending if you can find the place on the website to put the number. Or you can send an email to info cua trial at sanifit, S-A-N-I-F-I-T dot com. And uh, these contacts will appear on the page and somebody will get back to you if you want more information. I guess just to wrap up, and, you know, I had a thought, you know, the name of this medication is SNF472. Maybe you could solicit the people who are in the study to name it. So down the line, we'll be able to pronounce it. <laughs> um, just just <laughs> a thought. <laughs> but um, any closing remarks before we wrap up? And, you know, I really appreciate all the great information. Uh, yeah, I guess um, we just hope that people who are diagnosed with this condition will really want to participate in the CalCivix trial. Um, and, you know, if you're a healthcare professional, then, you know, refer your patients to the clinical trial site so that they have the opportunity to participate. So, uh, yeah, really um, hope that people take this opportunity in a disease area that's so desperately needed. People are suffering, too. I mean, you know, healthcare professionals have the opportunity to share something that could be life-saving. So um, do it, guys. Do it. I would also <laughs> add, you know, the way that trial is designed and coming to your point about um, uh, asking the patients uh, who are participating in the trial to name the drug, I think it's a brilliant uh, mm. suggestion. The trial is, has a lot of emphasis on the patient-reported uh, and patient-oriented outcomes. The wounds and the pain intensity are some of the main outcomes of this trial. Uh, so really, you know, this is a trial that should resonate with the participants and also the clinicians who take care of these patients. And we are, of course, as the investigators are excited and really look forward to potentially helping these patients and completing this trial. And one of these days have a approved therapy for calcifylaxis, which, by the way, has been around for, you know, over six, seven decades at this point. So this is not a new entity, but unfortunately has been ignored for a variety of reasons, including its rare incidents. Well, again, some of my favorite people are innovators and researchers. So um, I thank you so much for uh, sharing your information, and uh, I look forward to interviewing you guys again when you have the results and you're FDA-approved, and we've rid the world of calciphylaxis. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.